Dear listeners, welcome back. Stia Vento here and you're listening to The British Whisper, the place to be to know which stories are making the headlines or learn the English you need. On the podcast website, thebritishwhisper.com, you can find a link to the webpage with full transcript of each episode and its translation in Italian. In this 11th episode, I'm going to focus first on the biggest story of the week, which is, of course, the World Cup that began yesterday in Qatar. Next, Princess Diana is in the limelight. The Princess of Wales was lauded as a stylish dresser, possessed of that rare alchemy that inspired women to dress like her. Now, thanks to the crown, the style which defined her time in the spotlight has proved to be a catnip for today's teenagers who have no living memory of the royal, yet scour charity shops for that Lady D aesthetic. Next, the focus on how to prepare for a life after Twitter. The she-cows that surrounded Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter over the past few weeks. More than half of Twitter's employees have been fired or have resigned. The verification systems no longer means much, and some users have reported problems with security features. So, if you have an account on the social network, what do you do? Finally, the Queen Consort on the British love of dogs. I cannot imagine my life or my sofas without them. The World Cup that changed everything is the headline of the New York Times. It started yesterday with an opening ceremony featuring Morgan Freeman and John Cook from K-pop superstars BTS and a 2-0 defeat for Qatar against Ecuador. The decision to take the World Cup to Qatar as upturned a small nation battered the reputation of global soccer's governing body and altered the fabric of sport. The games, which normally start in late spring or summer, were pushed to accommodate the desert country's climate. One of the many reasons this is a weird World Cup. Qatar is a tiny speck in the Gulf Desert wanting the world to know it's there. It's the first Arab and first Muslim nation to host a sporting event of this size. Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Arab Emirates are looking on enviously, giving Qatar clouds. Qatar has divided people into camps, those wanting to celebrate football and those decrying the process that led to the cash-rich state gaining hosting rights for the 22nd World Cup. It's football on a heavy acid trip, but the Qataris have what they crave, the world's attention, writes the Times of London. The discovery in 1971 of the world's largest gas field led to the first transformation of Qatar, turning it into one of the wealthiest countries in the world and emboldening its leaders to see their nation not just as an appendage of its wealthier neighbours but as a true geopolitical rival. The cast to host the World Cup then was just another step, the chance to announce themselves, to sell their story on a truly global stage. The World Cup is forcing to look at the country we're usually happy to ignore. We buy gas from Qatar, we sell it primetime London property like Harrods and the Shard, with near and Harumph at its bokorness, but do we know or care what this place is really like? Now we do. The Qataris have our attention. 
rise to the Times of London. What has become obvious after a few days in Qatar is that this World Cup isn't for us. It's not for people who want to sit in middle European squares and get plastered on Eichenneken. It's not about LGBT or ESG or DII. It's in the first Arab World Cup and it will run accordingly. Anyway, how do you pronounce Qatar? The New York Times is an interesting piece on the correct pronunciation. It asks, It is Qatar, like guitar, or Qatar, like the British pronunciation of Qatar. We advise the business executives who bang on about how you dare 100% wrong and should be saying Qatar, like Qatar, or Gutter, or something more approximately Qatar. <laughs> Why does everyone on TV seem to have a different answer? Can we trust random instructional YouTube videos? Is there a way to say it without adding or however you pronounce it? But while a four-page phonetic guide created for journalists traveling to Qatar does offer a degree of linguistic relief, offering step-by-step -step pronunciation of any phrases like help and I was robbed. It is silent on the name of the place where you might need to say them. So, the Times stipulate that the problem isn't willful ignorance or cultural arrogance, but the Arabic pronunciation of Qatar is actually Qatar Qatar According to some lecturers and experts in Arabic studies that the New York Times interviewed. So, have you pronounced it correctly? So, have you binged on the crown yet? With some members of the Telegraph fashion team old enough to have lived through the 90s in all its minimalist glory, there has been much reminiscing about Diana's transformation from shy day to fashion queen during the period. In The Crown, Elizabeth the Bicke's depiction of the troubled princess is so wonderfully elegant you can't help but be captivated. Those of us who grew up with Diana, Princess of Wales, in the 80s and 90s will remember how she inspired women to dress like her. With her tongue-in-cheek knitwear, sharp blazers and bullet pumps, she was arguably the original fashion influencer. Now, thanks to the crown, the style which defined her time in the spotlight has proved to be catnip for today's teenagers, who have no living memory of the royal, yet scour charity shops for that Lady D aesthetic. When she passed away in 1997, even her most stalwart fans could not have guessed that her influence would still be as strong as today. But a generation young enough to be her grandchildren are eschewing contemporary low models for the allure of a Willowley's loan whose style seems relevant now as it was 40 years ago. Even items that were considered ife, the cycle short, the sheep jumper, are seen as the hate of chic by a slew of teens who are foregoing the popular 
Y2K aesthetic adopted by their peers in favor of Diana's whimsical take on the Get Decade Before. With the new season of The Crown on TV, the new Diana likes are poised to recreate those key looks from the 90s. Where season 4 documented the young lady's Diana naive style, season 5 focuses on her transformation into a style icon and includes memorable looks such as a red blazer with brass buttons, as well as a black revenge dress. With the hashtag Princess Diana currently enjoying 9.5 billion views on TikTok, the Telegraph met three teenage fans determined to keep her spirit alive. One of them is Daisy Pasternak, 19 years old. You could say that the love of Diana is in the blood. Daisy's mother, Anna Pasternak, wrote a book about her, while her grandmother, Audrey Pasternak, was a friend. While TikTok and The Crown have obviously played a part in rekindling interest in Diana, Daisy also cites the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, as playing a part too. Meghan, trying to take on a different role with the royal family, has shown a light of how different Diana was. I do think Meghan has tried to take something from Diana's style and implement it into her own, almost to draw a connection to her. Perhaps thinking if people recognize that, she will be as popular as Diana. In my opinion, everything Meghan does is quite calculated, says the teenagers. You can read the views of other teenagers on the article linked in the script. Fashion writer Eloise Moran, who began the Instagram account at Lady Di Revenge Looks in 2018, said to the Telegraph, Women are becoming more comfortable in speaking up and calling out men and the ways in which they have been wronged both professionally and personally, notes Moran. I think Diana is an embodiment of the movement. She was truly a feminist and had a reputation for being rebellious, but at the same time held herself so much grace. She's an icon for women and represents the power that comes from being alone. I can't imagine a time when that idea would ever become out of date. Do you agree, dear listeners? How to prepare for a life after a Twitter? Don't delay your account just yet. Elon Musk's takeover can teach us valuable lessons about our relationship with social network, writes the New York Times. Sheer chaos has surrounded Elon Musk's takeover Twitter over the past few weeks. More than half of Twitter's employees have been fired or have resigned. The verification systems no longer means much, and some users have reported problems with security features. So, if you have an account on Twitter, what do you do? Unfortunately, there is no simple answer. But this continuing spectacle presents an opportunity for us to learn how to have a healthier relationship with social platforms, so we are not dependent on any one of them. First, it is important to understand what is happening at Twitter. Threat experts told the New York Times that were concerned that the turmoil at Twitter, including a sudden lack of cybersecurity leaders and many community moderators, will cause parts of the site to stop working and, at worst, that security holes might lead to compromised accounts. 
But deactivating a Twitter account also poses risks because an impersonator could then, then more easily manipulate a person's followers. What's more, those who have already left Twitter quickly realized there was no real alternative. Apps like Mastodon, the open source site that involves posting on a social feed similar to Twitter's timeline, are tricky for most people to set up. Reddit is more silent by topics, LinkedIn is work-focused, Pinterest is centered on lobbies, TikTok is video-centric, and Meta's Facebook, well, let's just say it has its own problems. Yet, there is a silver lining. This tumultuous situation with Twitter, according to social media consultants and security experts I interviewed, can serve as a template with valuable lessons for everyone, including casual tweeters and celebrities on how to safely navigate any social network. The first lesson is to always have an exit strategy, a plan for what to do with your data and context in case things go awry. Lesson two is to avoid overinvesting time and energy on any one social media site. Add your best by posting on multiple platforms that serve your needs. And finally, remember that there was life before any of these social media apps, including Twitter, that will make it easier to forge a path forward. So, dear listeners, are you having a Twitter account? Are you actively using it? What do you think? It will be the future of this platform. Let me know by sending an email to thebritishwhisper at writeme.com or comment on my Instagram page. Now, dog lovers will be happy to hear that a new book celebrating our canine companions has been released, featuring a tribute by nonetheless Her Majesty the Queen Consult. Top Dogs, a British love affair written by Georgina Montague and photographed by Dylan Thomas, features more than 30 figures from the worlds of society, fashion, art, design and business alongside their dogs. The Queen Consort appears with her two Jack Russell Terriers, Beth and Bluebell, who she rescued from Battersea Dogs and Cats Home in 2012. They are both colourful characters, she writes. I cannot imagine my life, my home or my sofas without them. Well, I must say I agree with the Queen Consort. Neither can I imagine my life, my sofa, without my dogs and my cat. The book captures in words and images that intense love that can exist between our two species. I say can because not everyone, of course, is a dog person. There is a remarkable love between the owners and their dogs, says the writer. I was fascinated to see how these people had let a dog into their lives. These are often people with families and they have a connection with their dog that they don't have with their children. Some of these people are also incredibly private, but they would open up their most intimate stories in relation to their dogs. They will gladly talk about the extravagant cost of presents or the lengths they will go to make sure the dog is looked after. Perhaps the great cope is to have persuaded the Queen Consort, who was then still Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cornwall at the time, to be photographed along her side, her two Jack Russell Terrier, Bat and Bluebell. And she graciously wrote about a foreword to accompany the book. As she notes, 
It is fascinating how many idioms in the English language are connected to dogs. Let sleeping dogs lie. His back is worse than his bite. Puppy love. And so forth. <laughs> we also learned that our own dogs were rescued from Battersea Dogs and Cats Home in 2012, as I already said. Bluebell especially having endured a horrendous puppyhood. Dogs have, for generations, been a vital part of our lives, writes Her Majesty the Queen Consort, both as working animals and, quite simply, as faithful friends. It often strikes me how many idioms in the English language are rooted in our relationship with our canine companions. To let sleeping dogs lie, his back is worse than his bite, puppy love, every dog has its day, etc. Writes the Queen Consort. I adopted them from Battersea several years ago. Beth came from a family who could no longer care for her and poor Bluebell had been found abandoned in the woods, three weeks old, starving, covered in sores with a docketed tail and just few patches of fur. Battersea nursed her back to health and I fell in love with her when I visited the Brilliant Centre in 2012. They are both colourful characters and now I cannot imagine my life, my home or my sofas without them, writes Her Majesty the Queen Consort Camilla. A love of Jack Russell is one of the many things that she shares with King Charles III, who has always been a fan. The author of the book writes that if were ever to be persuaded to have a dog, he too would choose a Jack Russell. What the choice of breed says about a person is one of the subjects that Thomas was most interested to explore. It's remarkable that connection of human and dog amuses. Inevitably, this leads one to ponder the question, are dogs really like their owners? <laughs> Why do people choose the breeds that they do and in most cases remain fiercely loyal to them throughout their lives? but one must tread carefully when likening owners to their dogs. Google the characteristic of a Jack Russell, for example, and we learn from jackrusselowner.com that they are stubborn, intelligent, clownish and energetic. Any similarities with King Charles III? Well, um, only those who really know him can say. <laughs> and yet, for most of us, the main thing a dog can offer is love. It is unconditional and comes with a lifelong loyalty. Dogs are the companions who don't answer back, who love you no matter who you are or what mood you're in, yet are capable of lifting you out of depression and into joys. So, do you agree on the importance of dogs in our lives or, or any pet you have in your lives? You can email me your thoughts at the British Whisper at writeme.com or comment on my Instagram page. This brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. On the podcast website, thebritishwhisper.com, you can find a link with the full transcript of the podcast in translation in Italian. If you enjoy my show, please hit subscribe on Spotify or Apple so you don't miss any other episode. And if you enjoyed it and you would like to help support, please subscribe, leave a rating and a review. And if you can, a small donation via PayPal. It would mean a lot to me to support my expenses for the podcast publishing a newspaper subscription. To stay up to date with the British Whisper, you can follow me on Instagram 
at the British Whisper and spread the word. You are welcome to share any feedback, thoughts or ideas writing an email to the British Whisper at writewing.com. And I hope you can take some valuable information from this episode and apply it to your English learning. And be sure to come back next week for a new episode. Until then, I'm Thea and this is the British Whisper.